Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to the Financial Times Big Read, a weekly podcast featuring the best of our long-form reporting from around the world. I'm Anna Dedder from the Comment and Analysis Desk. Russians have enjoyed growth and prosperity under Vladimir Putin's regime, but after two years of crisis, many fear a return to the hardships of the era following the collapse of the Soviet Union, says Catherine Hill. With the economy in good shape, the people had felt the benefits of social gains such as better health care and education, the chance of foreign travel and longer lives. Now, however, with the country suffering its longest recession in 20 years, Catherine finds a new frugality emerging. Catherine's report is narrated by Max Seddon. A few things in Yaroslav's apartment still bear witness to the life he used to have. The well-fed orange cat, his daughter's high chair in the kitchen, and the oak laminate flooring he laid a year ago. Everything else is gone. When the 35-year-old engineer lost his job at the Lada dealership in Taliati last summer, money ran out quickly. First, he sold the game console, then the TV set. After his wife left him in December, taking their two-year-old with her and pregnant with twins, he even got rid of the bed. He says, what's left is the stuff the pawn shop won't take, and bangs another bottle of cheap white wine on the windowsill. Peeling at shreds of old wallpaper left from his unfinished renovation, he adds, it feels like the 1990s all over again. In the grip of its longest recession in 20 years, Russia is resigning itself to the loss of the growth and prosperity it has come to see as the hallmark of President Vladimir Putin's rule. Although few are seeing their lives unravel as completely as Yaroslav, many fear a return of an era they hope to have left behind forever. The decade of recession economic shocks, and poverty that followed the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Tatyana Mayeva, director of the Institute of Social Analysis and Forecasting at the Russian Academy of National Economy and Public Administration, or RANYEPA, says, Russians have come to highly appreciate the social well-being that was achieved since 2000, and therefore it will be extremely painful to let that go. Now that we've had two years of crisis already, but there's no prospect of growth, People are reminded of the 1990s. We are forced to acknowledge that the social consequences of this crisis will be like the 1990s because we are looking at an extended, lingering, grinding stagnation. Even before the impact of Western sanctions and nose-diving crude oil prices hit Russia in 2014, economic growth had slowed sharply. And even if the recession ends next year, growth is unlikely to be much more than flat after years of shrinking investment and household incomes. For the first time in almost two decades, a majority of Russians believe that the worst of the economic hardship is still to come, according to the Russian Public Opinion Research Center, Tsyom, a pollster frequently used by the Kremlin. That's a sign that, despite Mr. Putin's stubbornly high popularity ratings, the trust in his ability to deliver a better future is gone. Mr. Putin first became president on the eve of New Year 2000, the moment a steep and extended climb in oil prices gathered pace. It would continue for 14 years, with only a brief interruption during the crisis of 2008 and 2009. 
In what many observers call Mr. Putin's bargain with the Russian people, the country put up with growing restrictions on political freedoms gained after the collapse of the Soviet Union in exchange for economic well-being and stability. The growth of the Putin era lifted large parts of society out of poverty, helped Russians become healthier and live longer, and created a taste for the spoils of middle-class life, such as overseas travel. By 2014, Russia's per capita gross domestic product had risen by 77% compared with 2000. Child mortality had more than halved, life expectancy increased by 12%, and the proportion of young people enrolled in tertiary education soared from half to three quarters. So far, only a small part of these social gains, widely seen by Russian society as Mr. Putin's main achievements, has been undone. Muzmaliva says, Indicators such as income levels and poverty levels suggest we have been thrown back by six years, to where we were at the peak of the last economic crisis in 2009. Wages dropped by 10% last year, rather than by three times, as they did in the 1990s. Many people, however, feel that they are taking a much larger step backwards, a perception caused by the drawn-out nature of the current crisis. Although 2015 was the first full year of economic contraction, income started falling the year before, and continue to do so. In February, real household income decreased by 7%, compared with the same month a year earlier, the fastest drop since December 2014. According to Birgit Hansel, the World Bank's lead economist for Russia, the increase in incomes had given people the option to get better health care, better education, some foreign travel, on their own expenditure. This allowance for some extras was a real benefit of transformation. But this extended slide in incomes increases people's reliance on legacy infrastructure again. And they realize how bad this legacy infrastructure still is. While Russians paid three-quarters of private health expenditure out of their own pockets in 2000, that proportion had risen to more than 90% by 2014. Ms. Hansel says, People had been avoiding public hospitals like the plague. Now that they have to go back there to save money, they may feel like they're going back to the 1990s. Many try not to. According to data collected by Russian newspaper RBC, 44% of urban middle-class families spend as much on health care as they used to, a larger percentage than on any other item. Spending cuts on food, clothing, and alcohol by far outstrip those on medicine. To avoid state hospitals and still stay within their budgets, Muscovites have become very savvy. Muslim Muslimov, a doctor and owner of Clinic No. 1, a mid-sized private clinic in Moscow, says... Patients have started avoiding expensive procedures such as arthroplasty, joint surgery. They are also getting second opinions from other doctors more often. If in the past, 5 out of 10 patients who came for a consultation would get some kind of treatment afterwards, now it's only 2 or 3. Dr. Muslima's patients are also trying to save on consultation fees. He says, Traditionally, people would say that they needed help, and the doctor would propose what to do. Now, once they come in, they tell you, my stomach hurts and I want to have a gastroscopy, or I have headaches and I want to have an MRT, so they are trying to cut the consultation and go straight to diagnostics. The new frugality is pushing private clinics into fierce competition. Over the past six months, a smattering of deals websites, especially for private clinics, have sprung up. On sites like Medbooking or DocDoc, which negotiate discounts with certain clinics, patients can find the lowest price for any given treatment in their city that day. But experts warn that such approaches will not be enough. Ms. Maliva's institute recently found that households were still struggling to adapt to the economic crisis and failing to balance their budget. She says, The kind of socioeconomic development Russia has seen in the past decade and a half has not created any meaningful safety reserves.
During Russia's last economic downturn, a deep but short recession in 2009, the government cushioned part of the fallout with social support handouts. But now, as plummeting oil prices have cut deeply into budget revenues, and more than half of the country's regions are running deficits already, there is not enough money for that. According to Russia's Federal Statistics Agency, 14% of the population lived below the official poverty line in 2015, up from 11% in 2014, and the highest percentage since 2006. But sociologists from the Russian Academy of Sciences estimate that the number of poor has doubled since 2013 to hit one quarter of the population in 2015. Moreover, despite many years of economic growth, the country has failed to ready its pension system for a rapidly aging population. This year, the government raised pensions by 4% to make up for rising consumer prices. But as the inflation rate was more than double that last month, pensioners' real incomes are falling. Pensioners account for one-third of the population, and their number is forecast to equal the size of the working-age population by 2030. Pensioners already have disproportionately low incomes. Independent economists argue that, as pensions are often the cornerstone of family income, up to half of the population is at threat of sliding into poverty. Some warn that if the economy continues to stagnate for five years or longer, more of the gains of the Putin years will be lost, and Russian society might get closer to the mirror image of the 1990s, with its social stress, endemic alcoholism, and falling life expectancy. For many, poverty can threaten even if they have a job. As Russia's working population is shrinking, employers hold on to as many of their staff as they can even during crises, but cut salaries, send workers on unpaid holidays, delay wage payments, or hold off on social allowances. Alexander Alexeyenka, a retired truck driver from Ivanova, a rural region east of Moscow whose fortunes have been deteriorating alongside the decline of its once huge textile plant, says, Our people are being squeezed, and our entire region with them. An estimated 70% of the local working-age population now works in the capital, mostly in low-end service jobs. Mr. Alexienka adds, Before the crisis, security guards would get 1,200 to 1,500 rubles for a shift, but now their bosses tell them, 900 rubles, take it or leave it. The 63-year-old has gained some small fame by blasting the president for incompetent economic policies and calling for his resignation at recent truck drivers' protest rallies against a new electronic road toll system run by a friend of Mr. Putin's. According to Tsiom, public satisfaction with the economic and social policies of the government has fallen to its lowest level since 2011 and is at a five-year high. In January, 32% of respondents said they might participate if there were protests over economic or social issues in their hometown, the highest proportion ever measured by Tsiom during the Putin era. The numbers have leveled off since then, but are still higher than at any time since the third quarter of 2011, the last time Moscow saw mass demonstrations against Mr. Putin. In some areas, the sense of trouble is palpable. One of them is Yaroslav's hometown Taliati. In this city of 712,000, which has fallen on hard times with the decline of the vast Lada car plant it was built around, many people are very angry. Sergei, a 40-year-old taxi driver, directly blames Mr. Putin for the fact that his small grocery shop went bankrupt a few years ago. It's some kind of plot of his, he fumes. I don't believe Putin, and I don't believe anyone in government. In fact, I'll sell this country to anyone who wants it for 10 kopecks. But observers are spectacle about expectations of large-scale revolt. Mr. Muslimov senses a retreat into the private among Muscovites. He says, People are paying much more attention to their health these days. This may be partly driven by the country's aging society. 
Russia's working age population is shrinking by 1 million a year. But even those social segments and age groups that are generally more likely to protest are holding back. To Mr. Alexeyenko's exasperation, neither the truck drivers, nor the Ivanova proletariat, nor the Moscow middle class are ready to transform their dissatisfaction into political action. He says, When Putin started, they all put great hopes into him, and they continued to believe in him for a long time. But now, nobody believes anymore. And yet, for the sake of so-called stability, people will put up with anything. Mr. Alexeyenko, who calls himself a communist and has been organizing protests for more than 30 years, says his compatriots should follow the example of French farmers who pour milk into the streets to protest a drop in prices for their produce. But no, the people here, they bow, they buckle. I wouldn't say they are afraid. I think they just don't believe that they can change something, he says. One of the reasons is that the middle class, historically an agent of change in other societies, has barely grown in 16 years under Mr. Putin. According to Ranyepa data, it has been stable at around 20% of Russian society ever since 2000. The long-term survey shows that while it was dominated by entrepreneurs and professionals 16 years ago, these people gradually moved into the state sector, mirroring the growing role of the public sector in the course of the Putin years. This has prompted some Russian analysts to say that the country's middle class is disappearing altogether. Moreover, despite the country's overall wealth gains during the Putin years, the income gap has widened. The country's GINI coefficient rose from 37 in 2000 to 41.6 in 2012, suggesting a less equal distribution of income, which sociologists believe would lessen the effect of political empowerment. Other forces vital to a vibrant economic future, such as scientists and multilingual talent, have left the country amid rising political pressures and a weaker ruble. According to Levada, Russia's only independent pollster, the country's most financially secure and best educated are most likely to emigrate. Ms. Maliva warns, Some people fear social unrest. What I feel more is social apathy, infantilism, indifference. You know why? With a society like that, it will be even more difficult to lift ourselves out of crisis, and it will be impossible to make it. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. New start. 